Again, Merry Christmas, and thank you all for joining us this morning on this Christmas Eve. And uh, Christmas is just such a delightful time, and a lot of people enjoy the Christmas music, putting up the Christmas tree on or before or very soon after Halloween. And so it's crazy to think that it's coming to a close right now. And we're so grateful for our church family, my family and I, uh, especially for all the love that's shown in this season, just the amount of gifts that have been given to us, though certainly not expected, do not go unappreciated, and I'm sure that it's been the case uh, amongst the congregation as well. So we're just another reminder of how grateful we are for our church family. And uh, one of the gifts that we were given was a gift card to a particular store, and so we decided, well, let's go to that store and let's get some stuff, and a few of the boys wanted to come with me with their own money to buy uh, some presents for what they presented was uh, others, but it ended up being... well, what can, I, what can I get myself? But that's neither here nor there. It was a good conversation. Uh, as we got into the checkout line, one of, the, uh, one of our congregants was the person checking us out, and so I was just all distracted. Uh, she was being just so incredibly kind to the boys and reaching out and asking them questions and so forth. I was a bit distracted and just swiped my regular card instead of swiping the gift card, which is a big, huge no-no. And so I decided right afterwards, I've got everything here. I might as well go to customer service and see if I can remedy this error of mine. So I went to customer service, waited in line for a while. The boys were super great. And uh, by the way, they ended up buying something, but it was at the checkout line, so they bought gum. They couldn't decide what to get in all these other sections, so uh, they, they got the gum. And, and they asked if they could tear into it. I was like, of course. And so while we were waiting in line, they got, they got the gum through the gum wrappers in the trash, which will be significant for the story in a second. Um, and so I got to the front of the line and explained my situation. Hey, I swiped with my card. I've got this gift card. Is there anything we can do here? And this poor teen gal was like, well, what we'd have to do is you'd have to return each item individually, and then you'd have to recheck out each one of these items. And then she left a big pause as if I would be like, okay, never mind. But we just kind of paused for a second, and she's like, do you want to do that? I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> so we ended up exchanging everything, and uh, I had to, yes, dig in the trash to find the, uh, the code for the, it was right on top, okay, for the gum that the boys had torn into and so forth. And so the, the remedy, the situation was remedied no less. But I'm sure each of us have those Christmas stories where these gifts that are exchanged and so forth within Christmas should, you know, it's, it's a sign of our love for one another, should uh, signify the peace and the greatest gift that was given us. But a lot of times, it brings this consternation and these difficulties that come with it. And this morning, we're continuing our Light of the World series that will conclude this evening at 6 o'clock for our candlelight service. And we'd love for you to join us. We get a Sunday where we get to double dip, so you can be here at 6 o'clock for our services. Every year, we call it a candlelight service, but what are we always devoid of? Candles. Guess what we have this year? We have actual candles that we will light on fire in this very room with fire extinguishers, of course, at the respective exits. So um, we will have fire in this room. And for those who are nervous about bringing children, we are going to have actual battery-powered candles so they can participate as well. We'd love to have you here. Or if you know somebody who would be apt to come to a candlelight service, please invite your non-believing friends or neighbors or so forth uh, right here at 6 o'clock. We'd love to have you guys. Pastor Virus is going to conclude this series 
series this evening, this Light of the World series, and I'm really excited for this. It's one of Alexandra and my favorite passages in Luke chapter 2. So with this message for us this morning, we'll be closing out the fourth and final description of the Messiah that was to come according to Isaiah in chapter 9, specifically verse 6. So if you wouldn't mind, as per our custom in the series, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. That's going to be found on page 492 in the front section of the Bible, if you're using one in the chair back in front of you. To recap, we began our series by discussing the first of the signifiers of what this this Messiah would be. He would be a wonderful counselor, then mighty God, then everlasting Father. Today, we're landing on Prince of Peace. So we began by talking about how not just his counsel is wonderful, but he in his very person is wonderful. We signified that one of the things we're going to seek to do in this series, and I hope you've seen it borne out, is simply point at this wonderful Messiah and just say, look at how amazing of a provision he is. Look at how this promise has come to fulfillment in such a wonderful gift as Christ. But not only that, the counsel that he gives, especially as spelt out in his word, is itself wonderful and unlike any human counsel that we could possibly give. Then Pastor Burke talked about how he is mighty God, not only only is he wonderful counselor, but inexplicably, he himself is this, this son that was to be given, is himself mighty God, showing the depth of this prophecy that was given and the ununderstandable nature of this fulfillment that was to come and did eventually come in Christ Jesus. And then last week, Pastor Brent talked about how he is everlasting or eternal father, showing that while all kingdoms come to an end, all even fatherhoods come to an end eventually on this side of eternity and will uh, dissipate, we have an everlasting father whose kingdom will itself have no end. So with that, let's begin by reading the passage that served as our lead text for this series, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Nebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness. They'll see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. Light and gladness, synonymous there. They will be glad in your presence. Again, that light and that presence of God, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden. We just sang, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be not for war, not for mourning, but for burning. It'll be fuel for the fire. For, here's our key passage, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government is going to rest on his shoulders, and his name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, he is going to accomplish this. Zeroing in on the final aspect of the description of this child who was to be born to us, who eventually came as the Christ, let's look at three truths that help us rejoice in the gift of 
peace, that unique aspect that would characterize the Christ child. So first we need to understand peace according to the Bible. Peace is a very essential uh, aspect. It's something that must be understood. As we'll learn later, it's one of the few attributes that's carried on after uh, chapter, after verse 6 of our passage. And, and peace is something that each of us longs for, each of us strives for. But we have to understand peace according to the Bible. If we don't look at what the Word of God has to say about peace, we'll have a myriad of different opinions about how peace is accomplished. You could ask one person, what is peace? They may say, um, peace is when my wife finally agrees with me, or, or peace is when my children finally obey me, or peace is when I finally have quiet, or when all the work is done, or so forth. But what is peace according to God's Word? More specifically, we're going to narrow in on the scope of what Isaiah has to say about peace, since since he's the one using this word, we'll look more specifically at what he has to say about this particular word, looking at other passages of Scripture as well. Peace is essentially described in the verse immediately following our root passage. Thus, peace between men would be described as the end of conflict between people and between groups. As I just mentioned, peace is the only concept carried past verse 6. It's, we, we see that we, we could see aspects of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Verse 7 carries this prince aspect, and verse 7 carries this peace aspect. There will be no end to the increase of his government. This prince is going to rule and reign, or of peace. That's what's going to characterize this ruling. On the throne of David, that's the lineage by which he had come from and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Those are two essential attributes and aspects of peace, uh, necessary aspects rather of peace, justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So this government will last forever and it will be characterized by peace and that which will attain that peace is justice and righteousness. Already, we're seeing a robust definition of what peace truly is, and we know the zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish it. One thing to make clear before continuing, peace will certainly be characterized by the absence of conflict, but the peace that the Lord offers is far more than the absence of strife. It is an active agent in and of its own self, in and of its own being, But before discussing divine peace, let's look into a sort of peace that's attainable on this side of eternity. Every society that enjoys any measure of genuine earthly peace and maintains its governance, it it does so by a cost. There's always a cost involved when a nation or a government is seeking to attain peace. According to verse 7, this prince of peace will enlarge and maintain his government through the forces of justice and of righteousness. Those are the two forces he's going to use in order to bring about that peace. How does a prince then enact justice? How does a ruler maintain righteousness in his kingdom? It takes the assertive and often violent displacement of hostile, or you could say unrighteous, entities in order to attain and in order to maintain peace. It might take a violent act in order to bring about this peace. You and I both know, and this is kind of a clunky way of saying it, but I wanted it to rhyme, peace is fought, not caught. Okay, peace is fought for. Peace is not something that is just simply caught. You need to fight for genuine peace, It's never something that happens in a world that's governed by entropy. Everything is working towards destruction or dissolving, nor is peace maintained through passivity. Peace isn't something that just comes about in our life, or peace is not something that just is maintained through our inactivity. 
The pursuit of justice and the conservation of righteousness involves great effort. Another reason why we need a prince of peace to govern us because we ourselves are often unrighteous and unjust. So we see a need for a provision, something external to us. But this absence of peace is not limited to our relation with one another. We see that peace between man and nature is the end of conflict with that. We see that even with this world in which we live, there is conflict, there is tumult, there is a straining against, there are results of the fall. Isaiah even speaks to a time in the future when the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf of the young lion and the faultling together and the little boy will lead them. Look at that picture. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. They're young. Can you imagine a, a bear grazing? Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw with the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what is going to be pervasive in the new heavens and the new earth, the knowledge of God and then the peace that will characterize it. But does that describe our current situation? Put a young goat with a leopard and see if there's total peace between the two of them. We are in conflict with nature by itself. When you go hiking, what do you typically have to bring with you? Bug spray. Why? because they want your blood. <laughs> They're constantly going after you. You have to kill them. You have to destroy them or at least ward them off because we are at conflict with nature itself. Or if you drive by um, houses that were put up by a coast, how are they always built? They're not built like Midwestern homes. They're usually built up on stilts because it's seeking to ward off any sort of massive waves or hurricanes or high tides that would come in and seek to destroy that which we have built. But we understand from passages like we just read from Isaiah 11 that there will be a time when conflict between us and nature will eventually come to a close. In its place, there will be an abiding peace characterized not by consternation, but friendship and delight between entities that were previously in open and continual hostility towards one another. In other words, Leopards don't have something against certain kinds of goats. Would you agree with me? It's not just like goats that offend them that they want to eat. They think all goats are equally tasty, at least as far as I'm concerned. I haven't bothered asking one. And all goats, as far as I'm aware as well, are opposed to all leopards for this very reason. It seems like all of them want to eat me, so I don't like leopards. But Scripture speaks of a time when peace will replace hostility. That's why it's more than just the absence of conflict. It is something, it is an active agent in and of itself, the boy will lead out the lion and the leopard on his way to playing with the vipers and the cobras. And so far, both of these aspects have been external. We're in open hostility with one another. We're in continual conflict with nature. But we also see that peace within ourselves will be the end of conflict inside of us. There is a peacelessness that characterizes each one of us. Chapter 26 talks about this as well, almost as if a lack of internal peace is what is uh, more in line with the norm than inner tranquility within us. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It almost seems like the default is this internal tension within us, this absence of peace. But rather, Isaiah is saying, you're gonna keep the one in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This passage is often visited when someone is bound up in anxiety, which could be characterized by a, an absence of peace or a lack of peace internally. 
And while that's good and well, we see the source when Isaiah presents the solution, a matter that's constantly neglected. If it's true that a mind that has stayed on God, a mind that's actively trusting in him, is in perfect peace, then what is the alternative? The mind that's peaceless is not trusting in him. It's not fixated on the Lord. And that's why Jesus said, peace I leave with you. This prince of peace says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Perpetual internal peace is not the experience of the Christian. I think all of us would say, there are times where I'm anxious. There are times where I'm fearful. But just because that's our experience, ought that be our expectation as well? Just because we experience it, is that what we should come to expect? In other words, is Jesus saying, look, you're gonna be anxious, I get that. I would simply recommend giving peace a try. Is it presented as a recommendation? Certainly not. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. This is an active charge given by the Prince of Peace. We ought not conflate experience with expectation. We'll miss the opportunity for peace altogether. We have to fight to keep our mind fixated on trusting and loving God, internal peace. We have to fight mosquitoes with bug spray and hurricanes with stilted houses, natural peace. We have to fight to enact justice, to maintain righteousness amongst ourselves, horizontal peace. But this peacelessness, everyone say peacelessness, Peacelessness, it's a word we're making up this morning. This peaceless, I've got a little uh, red squiggly underneath it showing me that at least word doesn't think that it's a word. So the origin, the origin of this peacelessness is much more vertical than a horizontal of issues. In order to understand peace, we need to acknowledge that all of our conflict comes from our war with God. Looking forward to where we're going in this particular point, so let me give you the subpoints of this already. Sin which is the breaking of God's law, brings about, number one, conflict with God, brings about conflict into our own souls, and we'll get back to them in a second, brings about conflict with creation, and then it brings about conflict with one another. So we even see ourselves working out of the points that we just worked ourselves into with this point. The argument is this. Each manifestation that we see of peacelessness can be tied directly back to a disjointed or even severed relationship with our creator. So let me say that again. Each instance or each manifestation of peacelessness can be pointed back to a disjointed or a severed relationship with our creator, or we could say the prince of peace. There were two sections of scripture that the preaching team squabbled over in order to make this point. Some thought we have to be in Genesis 3 where this peacelessness first came about, and others argued, no, we have to stay in Isaiah. You could go either direction with it. I'm staying in Isaiah, but you could look at uh, Genesis 3, 7 through 17 and march through each point and be like, yeah, I see that when we fell into sin, when Adam and Eve first sinned and chose to rebel and sever that relationship with God, these are the characteristics of peacelessness that resulted immediately thereafter. But Isaiah also brings about the peacelessness originating with sin brought about conflict with God. Chapter 59 makes that abundantly clear when he says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Again, it is this severance, it is this sin that separates from a holy and righteous God that will lead, as we'll see in a minute, to all sorts 
of peacelessness. I say this quite often. The thing that every Christian wants more than anything else is fellowship with God. That's what we just want to be with him. And yet we know that sin has created separation from him in the garden just as it creates this separation from him today. Isaiah begins his lengthy prophetic book, the book that we've been in the past month, by an acknowledgement of this reality. Verse four of chapter one, going back to the beginning of the book, he says, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. Would you like these as descriptors for you? Sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Here, the word of God describes the essence of peacelessness to be a direct result of the nation's sin. And this turmoil finds its origin in the abandonment of God. They've chosen to turn away from God. Thus, it brings about all of these bad results. Peacelessness is separation or strain in one's relationship with the Prince of Peace. I mentioned earlier that peace is more than the absence of conflict. When we were getting together in order to talk about this passage, one of the members of the preaching team, Pastor Rod Hutton, mentioned why it is not just the absence of conflict, and he brought about North and South Korea. In that demilitarized zone where there is no active fighting going on, would you say that demilitarized zone is a place of peace (laughs) or just simply the absence of conflict? So it has to be much more than that. From a human perspective, peace is unity, especially where there was once conflict. But divine peace, as we mentioned a bit earlier, is so much more than that. Philippians 4 describes it as something that surpasses understanding. It is a peace that that surpasses comprehension. Thus, it's difficult to put into words what divine peace truly is. Divine peace is a powerful force, and it's attained through a right relationship and a fixation on God, as Isaiah 26 specified. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And remember, peace is fought, not caught. It's something we have to actively seek after. We have to be fixing our eyes on the Lord because our tend is towards drifting. And this was proven through the murder of the first martyr. I'll direct your attention to Acts chapter 7, if you wouldn't mind turning there as well. As we're kinda, as since we're double dipping in church, having two different services, we might as well double dip in passages as well. Acts chapter 7, starting in 51, begins the end of the recounting of the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. So Stephen was chosen as one of the first deacons because, quote, the Spirit was in him. So the Spirit of God was very powerful and active in this individual, and he was elected as a deacon in one of the first churches uh, after Christ had already resurrected and given the Spirit of God to um, believers. And he was a a mighty man, very uh, very sacrificial and servant, uh, a man that was characterized as a servant-hearted. And then he was taken before a a tribunal, uh, a lot of the religious leaders at that point in time, and he begins to walk through Israel's history to these scholars of the law, showing that it's not just those who have been studying God's word that are, and certainly it's not just the experts of the law, but those who actually seek to follow after Christ are the ones who are the experts as such, those who are filled with the Spirit, those who are seeking after this Jesus. And he begins at the very beginning and walks through the narrative, landing on Christ, and then talks about how they themselves, the ones who he was talking to, were the murderers of this Christ. Beginning in verse 51, he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, just as Isaiah is doing in our passage this morning, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Imagine hearing that. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, is it gonna be like Acts chapter two, where it says they were cut to the quick and then asked, how must we be saved? Is that where this is going? No. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, can you picture the scene? Very vivid. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But, listen to where they go, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. Can you see the violence of this situation? When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, heaping rocks at him in order to slowly and painfully kill him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, soon to be Paul the Apostle. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, get him, Lord. Is that what he said? No. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Imagine the humility of that. Having said this, he, what does your Bible say? He fell asleep. Interesting way of saying the Lord received his spirit. We often think of peace as a time when all the kids are finally asleep, the major tasks of the day are completed, and we're finally safe in our comfortable beds. Is that how you describe the scene that we just read in Acts chapter 7? And is there any better word to describe Stephen's state than one of inexplicable peace? One of the reasons divine peace surpasses comprehension is because it transcends all circumstance. In one sense, we share in the peace that God himself enjoys when we entrust ourselves to him, and he himself is unaffected by circumstances. Conversely, all peacelessness begins with a broken relationship with God, but it makes its way into all other facets of life. Sin brought about conflict into our own soul our own souls. Adam and Eve saw this when they first ate of the fruit and had that separation. Their eyes were metaphorically open. They saw that they were naked and clamored to cover themselves. Isaiah shows that this effect hasn't lessened thousands of years later as Isaiah 1 marches on. Where will you be stricken again as you continue your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. And then he goes on from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out, bandaged, nor softened with oil. Sin always promises joy and life, but it brings about wounds and brokenness. And eventually, according to James chapter one, brings about death. This peacelessness that results from our separation from God seeps its way into our own hearts poisoning our souls, bending us out of shape from the imago dei that characterized our initial composition. Merry Christmas, by the way. Is this the Christmas message you were expecting? I haven't forgotten that it is Christmas. Uh, But the passage doesn't stop there. Sin brought about conflict with creation. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers, are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. God promised in Genesis 3 that women would be pained in childbirth and the ground would be near unworkable for men. Isaiah 1-7 shows that the extent of this principle carried out 
The absence of peace that accompanies our sin can often affect our surroundings. We see that as well. Like a peaceless home will often fall into disrepair. The peaceless city will succumb to decay and as justice and righteousness are abandoned. The peaceless nation will fall prey to decay. All its establishments and governing bodies ripe with various forms of corruption. We see when peacelessness characterizes an entity, decay often surrounds it. And if that wasn't enough, sin brought about conflict with each other as well. The peacelessness of this passage is quite obvious. In Isaiah 59, starting in the latter half of verse 6, it says this, Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They don't know the way of peace. And there is no justice. There we see peace and justice working in tandem once again. No, there's no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. So we know what peace is. Unity where there was once conflict. More specifically, peace is a result of a right relationship with our creator. All forms of wandering away from him creates every manifestation of peacelessness. That's why it's so essential to trust in the Prince of Peace who then makes peace for us. Verse six begins with, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Again, that's how verse six of our passage begins. I don't know about you, but uh, since we began this text about a month ago, George Frederick Handel's uh, Messiah has lived rent-free in my head playing on a loop as that oratorio just over and over and over again, especially one movement in particular. Uh, But the Hallelujah Chorus is an obvious favorite of that oratorio, um, so so much so, the, the Hallelujah Chorus, that you're actually supposed to, when it's being presented, stand up when that portion of the piece begins. Has anyone ever been a part of, um, been, been, okay, maybe not, uh, but when Alleluia Chorus begins, everyone is supposed to stand, and it's thought that that practice originated when King George II supposedly stood up when the choir sang out King of Kings during the premiere of Hanel's Messiah in 1743, and allegedly he'd done this in solidarity to the one who truly does reign, this Prince of Peace. But earlier in the Messiah, there's the second favorite movement entitled, For Unto Us a Child is Born, and it's effectively a recitation of Isaiah 9, verse 6. This is the portion that's been stuck in my head and playing over and over and over again, kind of driving me a bit crazy. Uh, But the repetition of that phrase, unto us a son is given, has served as a helpful reminder that we must admit that we can't fix the brokenness ourselves. Why would God make a provision if no provision was necessary? Do you fill your car up with gas if it's completely full already? Do you help up a friend off the ground who is already standing? No, because no provision in those situations are necessary. If we can attain peace, which we know is reconciliation with God on our own, then no external means would have been necessary. And yet, unto us, a son is given. The mere promise of a coming Messiah decimates any notion that peace is possible apart from God's external intervention. God himself makes it clear that there is no peace for the wicked, according to Isaiah 48. 
And we know that each one of us falls into this camp because none of us have perfectly followed the law of God. It says a little bit earlier than, than that, if only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness, like the waves of the sea. And so we need a prince of peace who stands above the fray, one who isn't affected by sin, which we know brings about all forms of peacelessness. Knowing this, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. We must believe that Jesus is this prince of peace. He is this suffering servant who came to make peace for sinners. And narrowing in on the Christmas events, even Luke chapter two, was peace a specific promise during that Christmas season? Yeah, heralded by the angels themselves and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, an adulation of praise, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Of course, this is during the angel's announcement to the shepherds while they were heralding the, that the child would be born, the son would be given. And one of the results of this birth is the reconciliation between God and man, bringing about the peace that we so desperately need, the peace that was severed through our sin. But which of the overwhelmed shepherds could have imagined the cost of that peace as they were standing over this child that was born unto us? I mentioned earlier that peace always has a price. There's always a cost involved when peace needs to be attained. To create genuine peace between two warring groups, there needs to be the eradication of unrighteousness. If you were one of the shepherds out in the field that night, and I told you this plain fact, that peace requires a price, peace requires the eradication of unrighteousness, what would be your conclusion regarding this child that you were looking at that was born unto us? Unless you're utterly deceived regarding your own unrighteousness, you'd likely conclude that this child was born to eradicate the likes of you, I am that unrighteousness. This prince that was given, this prince of peace, if peace is to be brought about and it is to be a cost, that cost must fall upon me. But God had a different plan in mind for this son that was given. The book of Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel because it is so ripe with messianic um, promises and so forth. Uh, the, the gospels are the recounting of the life of Jesus, and there's so much of that, what Jesus' life would be characterized of in Isaiah, that it's jokingly referred to as the fifth gospel. This is obviously tongue-in-cheek, but the book is so riddled with these references that the New Testament is continually calling on his prophecies when talking about the Messiah, Right after Jesus heals a multitude of people, Matthew recalls this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself, that's important right there. He himself, now we're starting to see the, the script flip a little bit. He himself took our infirmities. He carried away our diseases. This is a call back to Isaiah 53, four, part of arguably the most concentrated passages that references the nature of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Peter also transliterates Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter 2, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept, he was full of peace, wasn't he? He kept entrusting himself to he who judges righteously, that, that righteous judge that brings about peace. He himself bore our sins on his body in the cross. There's that promise of he himself again on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Now, looking directly at that passage through the lens of peace, we see surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. 
Yet we ourselves esteemed him as stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being, our peace, fell upon him. And by his scourgings, we are healed. Unless those shepherds knew their Old Testament incredibly well, this promise of peace among men that was heralded by the angels would have sounded like a death sentence to them. But this child that was born... This prince of peace was not coming to eradicate the unrighteous. He had been given to us in order to be the cost for peace. And this is attained through only one thing. We are to enjoy peace with God only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, what is the title of this message this morning? After the final description of the Messiah, Prince of Peace. In this section, the the word that's so often neglected is the very first one, prince. I cut open a bunch of commentaries. I read a ton of uh, academic journal articles on this. I mean, it's only like two words, respectively, prince and peace, so I can read a bunch on it. Um, And and what is the overwhelming majority of them talk about, or what word does it often neglect? It, It spends almost all of its time talking about peace, but there's very little mention of prince, But in order to enjoy this peace, Jesus must be prince in your life. In other words, he must rule and reign over you. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have this peace with God through our Lord, our prince, Jesus Christ. Is this prince of peace your Lord? Have you by faith believed in his sacrifice in order to attain this peace? Because we know as we sit here on Christmas that led somewhere, this peace that required a cost was not Jesus as he was growing up, slowly getting more um, ruling and more reigning and more people to follow him so that he might destroy all the unrighteous on the earth. He lived as that suffering servant. He lived as the one who would be the cost on the cross eventually. So while we celebrate Christmas, one of the things that we look to is the cross, And if that's something that you have not looked to, if you have not bowed the knee to this prince of peace, we compel you to do that even this morning. What a beautiful time then, Christmas, in order to bow the knee to this king that was born to us, this son that was given to us. See this prophecy that was given to us to totally eradicate any notion that you yourself could save or provide for yourself. It is Jesus, the provision of God himself, that alone is able to be the Prince of Peace, to pay the cost necessary for peace to abide between holy, righteous God and sinful man. And for those who have bowed the knee to Prince of Peace, this Jesus, I'd ask you to rest in this forgiveness. Yes, we we use the word fight and we use the word war in here a lot, but it's not fight to attain you know, right standing with God. Again, that's a cost that we could not pay. It was paid alone with Christ. But we are to rest in the forgiveness that we've been given and then fight for this peace. I mentioned again, it's so often that we slip away from a fixation on Christ. Why was Stephen able to keep his gaze on Jesus? He had to fight for it because circumstances all lent towards him despairing, crying out in other ways, but he cried out in in a manner that is only described as peace. And that's because who was he looking at? the Prince of Peace. So this Christmas, let's be thankful that a child was given to us and he's described as this Prince of Peace. And let's rejoice that this Prince took the price of peace upon himself that we may have divine peace through this faith in Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for peace. We thank you that it's possible through Christ alone. And we thank you that you have given us this child that was born to us and that he lived the life that we should have lived but could not have lived. And he died that substitutionary death on the cross so that we might have peace. And Lord, through your spirit dwelling inside those who are yours, we recognize that we can, just like Stephen, have a divine peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, regardless of the turmoil that exists within us, that exists within our relationships, that exists within our very world, Father, we know that peace is possible through your son. We love you and we ask this in Christ's name, amen.